Support for Talk the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. And the time is 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, the old stories of fishing abundance haunt us in the 21st century. How could we have got it so wrong that we ended up without a viable stock of fish in the Gulf of Maine, once one of the most productive fisheries in the world? Is there any way back to the garden? Well, today we're going to talk about the possibility of of one way back to a garden um, of of fisheries uh, by talking about a possible closed ground fishing area in the northeastern Gulf of Maine. And our guests in the studio can help us with that topic. I'm glad to welcome Aaron Doherty. Um, Aaron is with the Penobscot East Resource Center. And and Aaron, you head up a project called the Down East Ground Fishing Initiative. That's right. Yeah. Good morning, Ron. The focus of this is to rebuild uh, depleted ground fish stocks in this area and support uh, a diversity of, of fisheries for, uh, for fishermen in eastern Maine out of these communities from Penobscot Bay toward Canada. Great. And you've brought along one of the founding board members uh, for Penobscot East, um, Ted Ames. Welcome to you, Ted. Welcome back. Uh, thank you, Ron. It's good to have uh, you. Nice, ni- nice to be here. Great. Well, let's start, um, Ted. Perhaps you can um, kind of harken back to um, how fisheries used to be. You think back of the, the history of, of Maine. Maine was really a fishing outpost for European fishermen first. Tell us a little bit about what might have been happening in those days. Oh, it must have been incredible. Um, I can remember when I was starting in the fishing business, which was back in the early 60s, and uh, my grandfather said, well, this is not a very secure business you're in. The fishing is terrible compared to what we used to have. Hmm. And uh, my father said much the same. He said, since I've been fishing, it's really gone downhill a lot, so you really need to do something else or get yourself uh, uh, a backup profession or trade. Mm. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself being squeezed out of the business at some point, etc. The abundance was incredible. Um, I can only quote for the stuff that I've seen, but back in the 60s, for example, when I finally did decide to go off to college and sold my boat, but I sold it with the condition that we come back and go ground fishing as soon as classes were out. Mm. Because unlike lobster fishing at the time, I was absolutely certain that I would get enough money out of tub trawling to make my way back to college in the fall. Mm. And it worked very well for a couple of years. You've used a couple of different terms we ought to define for our listeners. First of all, ground fish. Um, We don't see ground fish when we go into the supermarket. We see specific Mm. species. Tell us what the species are. And then you've talked about um, tub trawling. That's a a technique that our listeners might not understand. Oh, yes. Uh, Ground fish are fish that normally live close to the bottom. And the ones that you encounter when you're using hooks are cod, haddock, pollock, halibut, white hake, uh, were the biggies for us at the time. Mm-hmm. There was also a credible amount of various kinds of flounders, such as winter flounder and gray sole and, and dabs and so on. Um, I used to fish 
at that time out of a 36-foot boat, and we would average about 2,500 pounds a day uh, fishing from Vinyl Haven, uh, going for cod and haddock in the spring. Uh, it was at that time a pretty depleted fishery, uh, according to my father and grandfather. Mm, mm. <laughs> and uh, that wasn't bad because I fished a short string of gear. We had five small tubs of, of tub trawls, which are long lines with hooks. Uh, so the tub was where the where the, the the line was curled up in, basically. Right. Okay. And we would bail it out and yep. and uh, overboard, and then after having a coffee and sandwich, we would haul it back. And uh, when we were finished with that, uh, the spring fishery usually pooped out around the end of June, and by July, mid July, we were tub trawling for white hake. And our landings there, uh, we averaged for the several years that I went tub trawling for them, uh, about a thousand weight per tub or 5,000 pounds of dressed fish a day. Hmm. And you look at, at that, this is small scale fishing, a small boat along the shore, uh, never was more than, than uh, uh, five or 10 miles outside of, of uh, Matinica Seal Island. Um, and you go there today, and you couldn't catch in a season what we used to catch in a single day. Mm. And what you're saying is that the fishermen from the 1700s, the 1600s, 1700s, they must have had <laughs> a bounty that we can't even imagine. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was phenomenal. Mm. If you look at the historical stuff, you find that uh, the, the biggest ground fish port in the early 1800s was Bucksport, mm. and the second largest port uh, was Belfast, and they were landing primarily codfish. And so we're talking about the Gulf of Maine, and Aaron, maybe you can kind of help us see this notion of a sea within a sea. What's the Gulf of Maine? Sure. Well, uh, fish are managed, the, the stocks that we're talking about, the cod, haddock, and pollock, and flounders, and so forth, are all managed by the federal government, and they manage federal waters um, and when we talk about the Gulf of Maine, we generally talk about a really large area from Provincetown all the way up through Eastport, Maine. So obviously there's a lot of water there. And we're, we're primarily focused at Penobscot East Resource Center in a much smaller portion uh, that's relevant for the coastal fishermen in this area. And that's the area from Penobscot Bay to the Canadian Line. And uh, through, uh, through, through Ted's work, actually, and, and a lot of other people um, uh, since his work, we've seen that uh, the stocks that come back to these areas are, are, are critically important. That we've got to focus on um, the smaller scale of these stocks. And actually, it's, it's really neat what happens is that um, fish come back to the same place uh, to spawn r repeatedly in much the same way that, uh, that, that salmon do. The, these uh, codfish will come back to the place where their lives began, um, again, like salmon returning to rivers. You can sort of think of that as an analogy. And so that is really important when we're thinking about where we catch the fish because what we have to do is make sure that we're uh, managing the stocks in a way that aligns with the ecology of the ocean. And the fact that we don't do that today very well at the, at the national level is the source of a lot of our problems right now and something that we're, we're working to, to change at Penobscot East Resource Center. Well, let's welcome um, Dennis Damon. Dennis is the uh, current chair of the board for Penobscot East, and he's available to us by phone. I think you're in Augusta today, Dennis. Well, hi, Ron, and hi, uh, Ted and Aaron. I, I am. I'm actually on the road. Um, and sorry for being a bit late and and uh, we'll apologize in advance for what this connection may be like, but uh, this subject is too important for for uh, for us not to talk about it, and I'm glad that I'm part of it. So um, tell us your, your history, uh, your family's history in, in fishing. Well, I don't know if I can go all the way back to the beginning, but uh, <laughs> the part that uh, is most relevant to me was uh, my father was a fisherman and my brothers, and, and so growing up in Northeast Harbor, I was always going to be a fisherman myself in their footsteps. And uh, I heard Ted uh, talking about the uh, uh, what it was like 
before, and and I uh, had a similar situation. I would, uh, especially um, in my late high school years and uh, before I got into college, would um, go lobstering perhaps, and then take my boat and go to the eastern of uh, Baker's Island and and uh, handline for codfish primarily. And it wasn't anything to come back with seven to 800 pounds of fish and take them into Southwest Harbor where I think I was getting uh, two and a half cents round and maybe cents or something like so Dennis, you're breaking up. So um, um, why don't you um, find another another spot, and uh, we'll try to catch you um, in a little while. So um, Ted Ted Ames here in the studio. Um, this notion of of going out um, with a relatively small boat and going close enough to home. What what changed? So then we when we had the so-called 200 mile limit, the Magnuson Act, and so on. What changed in fisheries at, at kind of around that point? Well. Uh, by the time that regulation came in, um, it was 1975, 76, somewhere. In that's there. when it came in. Yes. But the fishery really got a severe beating in the mid 60s. Mm. Uh, matter of fact, it almost put me out of college. It was my junior year, and we'd come home to go fishing. The Russian fleet had entered the Gulf of Maine, and they were fishing outside. Well, this was June. And we were fishing up inside for for uh, uh, cod and haddock, and to the southward of there, the the whole ocean was lit up at night. There was such a large fleet, and they literally cleaned it. We kind of chuckled and said, "Well, they missed the fish this year. They're spinning their tires." But in reality, they did not. And the following year, uh, the fishery was flattened. Mm-hmm. And the same had happened literally the length of the coast. The Russian fleet uh, operated with fleet operations with processor vessels, uh, um, uh, research vessels that uh, steamed around locating large concentrations of fish and catcher vessels that were 200 to 250 feet long um, following along behind to catch them. And they would uh, fish an area where they would um, uh, organize their boats so that uh, each one was slightly behind the other in a large row and literally sweep an area clean. They Mm. were ridiculously efficient. Mm. And it flattened the fishery. Um, Pretty sobering. So then um, the U.S. and many other countries uh, began to see th- its effect on um, the, of the international fleets on their local fishery. The magazine Stevens Act was passed that um, said, okay, we've got a 200-mile limit. We're going to manage out that far. And then and, the and U.S. That, and, fishery got very efficient. And then, we, and then we Americans are very fast learners. Uh, uh, we learned... Uh, or a percentage of our fishermen learned this new fleet approach to fishing, better communications, better gear, and um, the federal government financed the introduction of a lot of boats with special uh, tax breaks and created what we all referred to as the investor credit fleet. Uh, it didn't matter whether they showed a profit or not because the tax write-off was the most valuable thing. And uh, people who were not fishing fishermen or had any direct interest in the fishery used this as an investment device to make money. Mm. And what happened was long after the fishery was economically viable, these investor credit boats continued fishing and the fishermen would simply take uh, a credible portion of the landings as shack, um, and the vessel would show a loss, and life would go on happily. So, so it ground so, the fishery way down. So, so gimmicks that were, were used in fisheries then got later introduced to banking, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the problem today is that we're, we're still our, we're, we're our own worst enemy. Um, we don't have the Russian fleet uh, competing and, and uh, uh, cleaning the bottom anymore. But um, 
we don't manage the fish in a way that uh, that supports the resource any better than we than we did years ago. And and while that was a step forward back in 1976, passing that federal legislation, the problem today that we've ignored is that we've lost all of the different subcomponents of fish up and down the coast. You know when. Ted, when you talk about some of the history and and the the prominence of uh, Belfast and Bucksport uh, in the eight, in the in the nineteenth century, a lot of those fish came from well offshore, but um, quite a number of them came from coastal areas as well, and we've lost both both components. And fast forwarding to uh, the much more recent history within the in the past five to ten years, we've seen disappearance of the fish stocks that have supported these coastal fishermen, fishermen who, because they've got small boats, they don't travel that far offshore and they, they participate in a variety of fisheries, lobster and ground fish and scallops and you name it. And now we see the picture of what's happened where more than 50% of the Gulf of Maine cod catch has come out of literally 1% of the area of the Gulf of Maine. And that's in one tiny little box down in the, in the Western Gulf of Maine off of Massachusetts. So what that means is if you want to catch codfish these days in any abundance, that's where you've got to go. And, and that just doesn't work for fishermen up and down most of the coast. And for that reason, as the fishery has become depleted along these areas, fishermen have also lost access. And so it's really a, a two-pronged problem that we're facing now. And to, to, to get into the, the solution just sort of um, quickly as an introduction, we're looking at ways, we're, we're really asking the question, how can we enable the fish to come back in areas where they historically were in great abundance? And what are the steps that we can take to make sure that these fish come back? And why do we think they actually will? Mm-hmm. And so... And currently, our management system really doesn't um, uh, help us with that. And uh, Dennis, are you still with us? Dennis Damon, are you still with us? No, I guess we've lost lost Dennis. So we're sorry. Um, his his phone isn't allowing him to communicate. So tell us again um, how the the current management system works, um, and this notion of a large scale management uh, process mm. is that because it was just easy to designate the Gulf of Maine and try to manage that great area? And didn't we start with managing species? Isn't that how we, yeah. we managed individual species? And, and what, was the, what was the transition in terms of how we manage fish? Well, you know, you've, the, again, scale is important here. And if you're a fisherman out of Stonington or Winter Harbor or any of these other coastal communities, um, fishing on the size boat that, uh, that you were talking about, Ted, that you had in the, in the 60s, 35, 36-foot vessel, um, you're most interested in the smaller scale coastal areas, but cod exist from New Jersey all the way up to northern uh, Newfoundland, and um, there are stock areas that are that are pretty large on this on the scale of again Provincetown to Eastport um, throughout those areas, and and you know from the from the national and international levels that's how they're managed. But what we're most concerned about is how do we make sure that as the fish come back, we don't just get a good number of fish, but we get fish throughout the areas that are actually accessible mm. to local fishermen, and that and that's that's really what's key. Um, let me, let me, I think we've got Dennis on the phone, so I'm going to go back to him for a minute. Uh, Dennis, are you with us? I am, and my apologies, uh, but I can't help it. That's okay. So, Dennis, um, you played a role in in terms of of the, the management of fisheries. Um, um, at one point, you were um, in the state senate, um, and you chaired the Marine Resources Committee, and you were also on one of the New England councils, um, um, I believe. And and tell us about some of the the schemes that people were talking about in um, in that era about how to manage fish. Uh, well, thanks, Ron. I, I, I did chair the uh, Marine Resources uh, Committee uh, in the state legislature for eight years. And during that same time, uh, I wasn't on a New England council, but I was on the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Council, and that is the uh, East Coast uh, Management Council. Um, I, I guess I don't know if you've talked at all uh, in your discussion about ground fish, uh, about their forage needs and their food needs, uh, mm-hmm. and LYs in particular. Have you already brought that up? No, that's that's uh, part of our conversation. So um, you've been following that issue for uh, some time. I, I Indeed, I have. I just want to give you a quick, and your audience, a quick overview of what I know of it and the importance that I've come to learn about LYs uh, as they pertain to our ground fish stocks, but as they pertain to a lot of other things. 
1995, the Maine State Legislature closed the um, St. Croix River to the native uh, elwives, an anadromous fish, those fish that live uh, most of their life in the ocean and then travel into the uh, inland waters to spawn and then return to the ocean, uh, very much like uh, Atlantic salmon, for instance. Uh, But in 1995, we closed that uh, access for a number of different reasons that I won't get into uh, directly. In In 2008, I sponsored a bill that would have reopened the uh, the uh, St. Croix River to uh, the Elwive migration. And in a very, what I would have to refer to as nefarious uh, move, the, at the literally at the last minute, the support uh, from the executive branch was withdrawn and that river uh, and that bill only succeeded in opening one dam. So 98% of that entire river area was and was then and is continued to to be denied to the LYs and their uh, life cycle. This year, and coming up uh, for a public hearing on Monday, is a bill that is being introduced by Representative Soctoma of the uh, Passamaquoddy tribe that will reopen the river uh, to the Elwive migration. It is said that if all of the river systems in Maine were open to their Elwive migrations, that we would see annually an increase of 54 million fish. That's a huge number. And the St. Croix alone would be responsible for 22 million of those fish. Now, those fish coming back out of the rivers and going into the Gulf of Maine and going into the uh, areas where they had originally or, or earlier inhabited provide food. They provide food for a lot of things, uh, not the least of which would be eagles and, and mammals like mink, but they provide food for our ground fisheries. And uh, Ed, uh, Ted uh, Ames, who is with us today, has uh, done some um, amazing work in terms of uh, citing where those uh, ground fish Um, spawning areas were, and not coincidentally, I think, they were at the mouths of these rivers where these fish were coming out in droves and providing food for them. So it's vitally important uh, that we reopen the St. Croix River uh, to the Elwive migrations, and uh, that is a very first step, combined with some management efforts that Aaron has, I'm sure, talked to you about, of restoring the ground fish into the Gulf of Maine. Great. Well, I think we'll we'll let you go at this point, Dennis. Thanks so much for participating, and and uh, um, good luck with your work. Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, good luck to all of us. Okay, good. <laughs> so you're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. Uh, we're talking about if, if it's time for a closed fishing, a ground fishing area in the northeastern Gulf of Maine as a strategy for rebuilding stocks of ground fish. In the studio with us are Ted Ames, who's a founding board member of Penobscot East Fisheries Resource Center out of Stonington, and Aaron Doherty, who um, part of his job is to, is to think about these things. Um, yeah. Comments on on what Dennis has just said, we'll get comments from both of you. Yeah, well, you know, I, th- this is this is something to get excited about. This is amazing. I mean, 50 million fish in in these rivers is just phenomenal. And you know, we talk about the contrast between what these fisheries used to look like historically and what they look like today. Um, and it and it's it is pretty remarkable when people think about what the capacity is for these rivers, but also for the marine environment as well. And so I just want to briefly contrast a picture of today that is is pretty unfortunate compared to what uh, Ted was talking about and what his grandparents' generation saw. So at Penobscot East Resource Center, we're operating the Sentinel Survey Fishery. And for the past three years now, we've worked with uh, one or two fishermen, depending upon the season, Jason Joyce out of Swans Island and Steve Brown out of Cherryfield, to fish with uh, this, the same gear type that people use historically, tub trawl gear, long lines. And, um, and as they're hook fishing in, in these areas up and down uh, the coast from Penobscot Bay East, using this gear, also using rod and reel, um, again, gear types that historically caught quite a lot of fish, they're coming back with 
virtually nothing, sometimes absolutely nothing. Uh, they may get, uh, you know, a few dogfish, a few hake. Um, we've only caught, I think, 35 codfish. 35 cod, that, that's a remarkable decline compared to where we were historically. And, and so now you listen to what Dennis is talking about with these alewives coming back in the rivers. And we've seen this begin to happen in the Kennebec after the dams were taken down there. And it's just a remarkable opportunity. And you also got um, a removal of dams in the Penobscot River. Right. So well, yep. just, this, just this past year. Yeah. Go ahead, Ted. Uh, Ted. This, is, this is a tremendous opportunity because uh, what my historical work has shown is that uh, along the New England coast, literally from Massachusetts Bay to Canada, there are four subpopulations of codfish. And in fact, other ground fish interacting the same way. They have separate migration paths, they have uh, separate spawning grounds, uh, and their population varies independently of each other. Mm. The bottom line is, is two of those subpopulations, the one south of the Kennebec all the way over to Penobscot Bay, uh, and the one from Penobscot Bay East, have collapsed. Nobody home. That ecosystem today, instead of being uh, a mixed ecology having fish and and shellfish of various kinds, now is completely dominated by crustaceans, mm. which is good in the short term. In the long term, it's really dangerous because uh, lobsters are cannibals, and if you have a diseased lobster, then you have an epidemic happening right in front of you and there's no alternative because uh, Maine fishermen don't have alternatives, species to switch to. Uh, but knowing that these uh, populations of cod and other ground fish have this sp finer scale population structure means that there's a manageable unit and my recent work has shown that there's a critical linkage between their reproductive ability and the presence of, actually, the presence of juvenile and young-of-the-year alewives. Uh, 54 million adults is pretty neat, but they all paddle to the south every winter. Uh, and what's left for a prey base that used to feed so many ground fish on the main coast in, to a great extent were young-of-the-year alewives because every adult female alewife produces between 1,200 and 2,700 fingerlings mm. each year that come down the river. And that's the prey base. So out of that 54 uh, million fish, you're talking about something pushing a trillion fish coming from a robust natural population of them. Mm. So if we could just step back. So as we um, um, modernized our fleets and got very efficient, we scooped up all the fish. At the same time, um, it seems like we weren't paying attention to this flow back and forth between fresh water and salt. And so we began to dam up rivers and we weren't paying attention to even culverts or underneath rivers. Is that, you know, is that the picture? Well, you know, these, these things overlap and the dams on the Penobscot started a lot earlier. For example, they right. started back in you know, the 1830s or 1840s. And, uh, you know, similarly uh, along rivers throughout Maine, the dams proceeded throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century. And it's only been very recently that we've we've really recognized that, that this is a major problem. So, you know, we haven't really seen what the productivity of the Penobscot River can truly be um, in the past 170 years or so. So it's going to be a, a really eye-opening change. Now, you know, we have had alewife populations up and down the, uh, the East Coast, and they've been in decline for quite some time um, for a lot of reasons, primarily because of these dams, because they're not able to, to return to their, um, you know, their, their natal grounds and, and, and spawn again. And so once we remove that impediment, uh, we're going to see some of these fish come back. And that's really the opportunity that we're looking at right now. And um, because back in the marine environment, because there are not ground fish there, these cod and haddock and pollock and so forth, fishermen aren't fishing for them anymore, which is really um, a, uh, a catch-22 because if fishermen aren't catching the fish, then we don't have enough good information about the stocks. And if we don't have the information, we can't manage them appropriately. 
And so we really need to be able to to, uh, to understand them better, but also to protect them, um, take a, a proactive approach to protect them, which is why we've uh, begun to offer the idea of, of um, proactively closing an area to ground fishing. This is not something that would impact other fisheries, wouldn't impact the lobster fishery, for example, but would say we need to allow this depleted area where in a summer we've caught 35 codfish using thousands of hooks currently, um, recognizing that historically it was far more productive. And uh, we, need to, we need to allow it to recover so that we can again have stocks that can support fishermen in these communities up and down the coast and, and have, a, have a healthy environment, have a healthy connection between these marine stocks and the, and the anadromous fish, the alewives that are coming down the rivers each, uh, each year. Mm. So, Ted, your research, um, both in terms of, of the food for ground fish, the alewives and other species, and this notion of, of um, distinct stocks and their, their habits and so on, um, that implies that there's a habitat need as well. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the area that we've ended up selecting uh, for a closed area, which incidentally we negotiated with the Port Clyde fishermen, the only ones that are currently fishing in the area, are actually for the last several years. Um, when, when cod moved to their spawning ground, um, they create a, a pre-spawning aggregation. They bunch up on the edge of the bottom before they move inshore. And particularly in eastern Maine, there's a tradition of fishing along that uh, 80 to 100 fathom edge and cleaning up these pre-spawning aggregations before they move inshore. And this has been a practice that's been repeated since the 40s. Um, uh, during World War II, for example, my father was among uh, a large number of other um, dragger skippers who used to fish along that edge, and that was the game plan. And unfortunately, it started this long-term trend towards the collapse we have. So when we made uh, a proposal for this closed area, we took a small section of that area, one which includes two or three of these smaller pre-spawning aggregation sites and included it in there. As a result, we'll be able to study and actually hopefully see the recovery of, of um, groundfish in that area because there's a safe place for them to bunch up and move inshore and reproduce. And because the prey base will be there, uh, it unlike what was going on back in the uh, 60s, 70s, and, and even the 80s, uh, the prey base that these fish uh, needed and wanted will be there mm. and be increasing, which means that fishermen along the coast for the first time in the better part of a century is going to have an alternative to just lobster fishing. Mm. So um, I'm going to just remind our listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns, and, and we're talking about the possibility of a closed ground fishing area in the northeastern Gulf of Maine. Our guests are, are uh, Ted Ames, who's a founding board member for Penobscot East, and Aaron Doherty, who's uh, in charge of a project to think about these issues and, and come up with some solutions. If you'd like to give us a call because you have either questions or your own experience or insights to this question, give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. That's 1-866-625-9378. So presumably, if, if the fish do well in this um, um, closed area, then they swim elsewhere. <laughs> in other words, they don't stay there. They swim elsewhere, and that gives fishermen the opportunity to catch them. And that's exactly what the strategy is. Mm. So, uh, so this is making more fish, right? So, Aaron, w you know, w you know, why haven't we done this before? Um, <laughs> Canada um, has lost its codfish mm -hmm. um, yeah. uh, years ago. It's been disastrous for um, both fishermen and the communities they fish out of. Right. Um, 
What have they done? Have they tried anything similar, or is this just brand new territory? Well, I think that's. Uh, thank you, Ron. It's. I'm really glad that you brought up the Canadian example, and it's. It's a really sad example. It's been uh, a disastrous decline on the order of of 97 percent over over the range of these cod stocks. Um, back in the in the 70s and 80s, for many of these large dock areas going around Nova Scotia and up through Newfoundland. They supported an incredible amount of, of fish for um, for both an offshore and an inshore fleet, and that was in uh, decline starting in the 80s and the 90s. So much so that uh, these uh, Canadian Maritimes actually declared a moratorium on catching codfish. So they said, "Our stocks are in such terrible shape that that we're just not going to catch the fish anymore." And I think even if they hadn't done that. Um, you know, they, they wouldn't have been able to catch the fish anyway because the fish just aren't there. Mm. And so that's been now 20, 25 years in many cases. And on the northern uh, range of some of those stocks, they're, they're just not coming back at all. We're seeing around the Scotian Shelf uh, some promising signs of recovery. But it goes back to what you said earlier, Ted. Um, there's resurgence of capelin, which is a, a small uh, pelagic fish up in the water column, similar to Atlantic herring and and um, river herring in terms of the value in the ecosystem. They they have, you know, they're they're high in these lipids that are needed for ground fish to uh, to um, have some reproductive success. So um, when cod are looking for food, they could eat shrimp or they could eat other crustaceans or whatever. But their preferred uh, food base is uh, is capelin or herring or alewives, and that's going to really mean the difference between a struggling population and a, and a rebuilding successful population. So in those areas of Canada where they've started to see some recovery, that recovery has accompanied having more food in the water. And and that's the real lesson to learn in terms of what's happening with, with, with Canada. And so we look at, the, at a similar opportunity that may be unfolding here in New England. We don't have capelin here. Um, we, we are managing Atlantic herring, and we're, we're beginning to move in the right direction on, uh, with some management measures there. But with the alewives, we've got a, a similar fish that plays, plays a similar role in terms of the ecosystem and the value for these ground fish. And so the question before us now is, what are we going to do with this opportunity? Are we going to take advantage of it to really make more fish or are we going to ignore it and just continue on the status quo? And that's the kind of conversation that's unfolding uh, within the New England Fishery Management Council right now, that federal body that manages these these marine fish stocks. Mm. And that goes again to, uh, back to this question of, of these fish are a public resource. Um, but it doesn't seem like we've managed them in a way that the public necessarily gets all of the benefit. Um, individual fishermen get benefit, and they're um, naturally um, very involved in this council process, this governance process, um, but it seems like the rest of the population might be not be playing much of a role in that. Uh, it's been squeezed out. Uh, the current catch-share system uh, creates a situation where it's uh, like... Uh, futures in farm products. Mm. Uh, people buy them and uh, they're yours and the active fishermen, particularly the coastal fishermen, have been being turned into tenant fishermen where they have to lease or rent a quota in order to catch a certain amount. Catch limits uh, can work, but what happens is we have exposed all of the spawning habitat and nursery ground habitat to these quota-based fisheries, and the focus is, i got to catch those fish regardless right. of whether they're the right ones or not. Sure. sure. And instead of going the Canadian route, which is, I think, much more robust, incidentally, this guy, George Rose, who's a gifted researcher and long-term uh, researcher of those cod, has reported that cod are once again spawning under the ice and that's a major turning point for that population of fish mm. we can do the same if we can create an inner layer where these fish can escape targeting long enough to reproduce because once they're finished they disperse and go back out across the bottom and become available for the fishery difference is you have another year class 
with the appropriate prey species right there for them, and it's a chance to change the whole dynamic of our mm. fishery. So you mentioned uh, kind of negotiating the location of this possible closed area with existing fishermen. And so, right. what's, what what have those conversations been like? How did how did they they kind of come come uh, to that conclusion? Yeah, well, you know, good question, and it really depends on the fishermen. Um, when when Ted and I went down to Port Clyde and, and uh, sat around the table with uh, uh, Jerry Cushman and, and uh, Randy Cushman and uh, Gary Libby and a few other guys out of that community. Um, the conversation really was, well, that area used to support a lot of fish, but uh, we haven't caught much there recently. And, um, you know, those fishermen don't really venture up that way very much anymore. They tend to go further offshore um, they fish around the perimeter of another closed area called uh, uh, Jeffrey's Bank. And, um, and I think that they really uh, see the value in, in trying to rebuild this area, and they'd, they'd like to see it come back. Great. We have a, I believe we have a phone call. You can participate as well. Give us a call at 1-866-625-9378 as we talk about a possible closed ground fishing area in northeastern Gulf of Maine. Um, go ahead with your uh, question or comment. Give us your first name, maybe the town you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. Uh, without commenting on the validity of the proposal, I would like to say that it's inherently debasing to consider animals a resource. And I believe that the depletion that we're seeing is due in large part to the historical trend not to respect noble animals like the codfish and the very important part they play in global ecosystems. Thank you so much for putting on this program. Okay. And thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Well, thanks very much for your call. one 625 9378 Yeah, it seems like um, we treat lots of things as commodities, and, and that gets in our way of, of, of managing things in, in a way that um, sustains us over the long period of time. Aaron? Yeah, well, um, you know, I, th- I think that's certainly an interesting comment. And, uh, you know, our, our motivation for doing this is out of respect for the ecosystem and out of respect for the fishermen that, that are part of that ecosystem mm-hmm. that depend upon these fish. And, uh, and, yeah, we definitely look at fish as a resource. Um, and as Ted described, we're beginning to look at them as a, as a commodity. And that's, uh, you know, uh, the catch limits are good, again, but uh, commodity, uh, probably not so good. And, and it has some other effects in terms of, you know, how we really manage these things. And just as a, as a brief example, some of the conversations that are happening right now are, on the one hand, you've got uh, fishermen that, have, um, are, that are, are operating larger vessels that can roam all around and uh, they're unhappy with the catch limits, and, uh, and so they're making the argument that uh, we're never going to re- be able to rebuild to those historic abundance levels, and therefore we shouldn't even try. Hmm. And would, the implication of that argument is that we don't have to sacrifice so much because we don't have to try to achieve some, some uh, you know, biomass targets that we, that we had set before, which is really a kind of Orwellian argument. And, um, and, and those of us uh, at Penobscot East Resource Center are saying something entirely different. We're saying, let's figure out how we can make more fish. Mm. That's fundamentally the difference. We need to think about how to change this system, how to make more fish. Mm. And so you've had the conversations with um, the, the last remaining ground fishermen in, along the coast of Maine. Mm. They've kind of agreed that this particular area that you're thinking about makes some sense because primarily because um, there aren't a lot of fish there and they don't fish there that much. Yeah, well, they're, they're some of the few remaining ground fishermen. I wouldn't say that the Port Clyde fleet is the last. Okay. Um, there are there are fishermen who fish further to the west as well, though uh, some <laughs> on the order of about 35, uh, which is a very, very small number compared to what used to be there. And uh, this, you know, as with any uh, good idea, um, I, I certainly believe this is a good idea. It's an uphill battle. Sure. And, uh, and there are... Um, there are some who want to be able to, to fish up here again, and they see um, a closed area, even though we're talking about a, a temporary closed area for the benefit of making more fish, they see an area that's closed to ground fishing as a, as a real threat 
to, to their fishing behavior. And they say, well, when those fish come back, I want to be able to catch them. And I say, exactly. That's why we're, we're implementing, that's why we're arguing for an area that can allow the fish to recover so that people can catch them in the future, but so that we don't make the same mistakes. Hmm. So we can learn from our past mistakes and, and change our strategies for the future and make sure that we have fish forever. So again, to take Ted's point, they can still catch the fish, but they're not going to be caught in that closed area. They're going to, when they swim out of the closed area, they can catch the fish. Yeah. 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 And, and this, this recognition, uh, of how a closed area can function to make the whole fishery better is very important. But the other part that keeps slipping through the cracks is that right now we have a fishery that used to support uh, hundreds and pretty close to thousands of individual fishermen uh, during the course of a year in the state of Maine. And the communities that they lived in. And now they don't because local depletions have put them out of business. Mm. And if you create this inner area uh, that's safe from being used by the modern, highly efficient gears that we have, gill netting and auto trawling primarily, uh, and say, well, you can create a situation where people can come in and fish, uh, but uh, with very strict limitations, then you revitalize this coastal economy that has lost its ability to have local supplies mm-hmm. of codfish and haddock and flounder of various kinds. The paddy boat business is gone. Uh, local restaurants are getting Canadian or uh, Australian fish instead mm-hmm. of ours, and so on. Let's take a couple phone calls. one 625 9378 If you'd give us your first name and where you're calling from, go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, yeah, my name is Ron. I am calling because I'm interested in the alive uh, issues. Uh, my interest is that I own a dam in Brooksville, which is at the outflow of Walker's Pond and drains into um, the Bagaduce River system. Yes. And there's a very healthy alewife run there uh, as a result of management by myself and other local people. The run was closed back in the 60s, and I don't know the history of that closure. Um, There's always more questions than answers whenever I get involved in a discussion with (laughs) alewives. Sure. I'm curious as to where they go when they do return back to saltwater and how it is that they don't seem to show up as either a target catch or a bycatch. Um, also, there's the discussion about dams and the restriction that that causes to the migration of the alewives. Um, and we run into that issue in Brooksville because there are several beaver dams that are below the man-made dam. Uh, the man-made dam, by the way, was built in the early 17... I shouldn't say it was probably late 1700s. Um, and there was a fishway built at the time that the dam was built. It was about a, a six, well, about a 12-foot drop from uh, Walker's Pond down to what's basically the head of the tide. Um, the question about the beaver dams, I finally answered um, to some satisfaction, was that the beavers leave holes in the dams that they can pass through under the ice in the wintertime. So the, and uh, we always end up in a discussion about uh, how how much of a hindrance are the beaver dams to the migration of the elwives. And I usually come back to the question, which came first, the elwive or the beaver? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Good. So, well, let's, let's see if we've got some comments. Uh, stay on the line for a minute. And uh, second caller, if you'll just stay with us, um, we'll get back to you in just a minute. But first responses, um, first of all, um, where do elwives go? Um, yeah. That's a good question. And then what about this passage? Ted, um, where do they go? Well, uh, the adults that uh, uh, will return to saltwater uh, after a very short stay in, in, in the pond. And uh, they hang around the shore until fall. And as uh, daylight, as sunlight, uh, day, uh, length of day shortens and plankton populations go down, they migrate farther south. And they're found literally all over uh, 
these grounds to the south of us, but most of them follow a migration route along the edge of the coastal shelf and end up somewhere between Ipswich Bay and Block Island. Hmm. So then um, the the young fish um, are living in the freshwater for a time. They, the young fish, in the meantime, are. They live in freshwater until fall, and then they migrate down to saltwater and are coastal estuaries. That's when they be, start being preyed on by right. predator species like cod and haddock. And... Uh, over winter in deeper water nearby because that's uh, as the seas as winter comes along the water temperatures are warmer in mm. deeper water so how about the question of, of fish passages um, most of our listeners may recall our, an earlier program when we talked about alewives exclusively and the fact that um, uh, colonial um, kind of legislation gave communities um, the right to manage this resource for um, their benefit so the actual towns actually got some income from from this and the, so if a dam was put in there was a always a, a fishway built as, as part of that system. The rules say that. That's yeah. not necessarily the case. Okay. Uh, in the, for example, in the Union River, um, there are no um, fishways in place, and that's a matter of real concern because that has the potential of producing five or six million adult fish per year. So what, what about our, our friend here um, on the line from, from uh, um, Brooksville and, and Walker Pond? Uh, the, the impact of those beaver dams, are they likely to be um, they're, impacting? They're a hindrance. They mm. are impacting. Mm. And um, I think uh, inland, uh, inland fisheries people would probably encourage their removal. I'm not sure what the procedure is. Right. But if you want larger runs of alewives, it would not hurt to remove those dams. Mm. Okay, caller, any other quest, quick questions? Um, well, the, the, the stream itself probably doesn't um, allow for a larger run uh, other than what is, is there now. And in, in the, when the run does take place, the, the brook is, is just black with fish. Mm, yes. It's very healthy. To the point where you know maybe a bigger fishway uh, would allow them to pass uh, more freely, but it doesn't seem that the uh, beaver dams are slowing them down at all. Okay, uh, they, they they make their way up through those beaver dams. They're not high beaver dams. Okay, I mean, obviously. Yeah. But uh, and then I got a couple more questions. Um, um, make them quick because we got another caller on the line. If oh, you could, yeah. Okay, I'll just I'll just get off the line and listen then. Thank okay, you. thanks very much. Um, you ha we have a second caller. If you give us your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question and, or comment. Hello. I guess we've lost that person. So again, um, the notion that alewives are are important. Yes, we do have that caller. You, go ahead. I'm here. I'm here. Great. I'm, I'm Mo from Blue Hill. Okay. And I support you know more than just one uh, sanctuary uh, refuge for groundfish, um, and also I might make a plug in for LD72 fish ladders. Okay. Tell us a little bit more about what you know about fish ladders. <laughs> um, the Union River is in serious need of fish ladders, that's for sure. Mm. Mm. And that's what I'm referring to. Great. Well, thanks so much for your call and your support. Um, uh, so this notion of, of managing upstream mm -hmm. um, so that we've got better food um, and we've got a healthy ecosystem because alewives do s s amazing things for freshwater lakes as well. They're not just serving the fish in the ocean. They're serving the ecosystem upstream as well. Oh, this is absolutely cool. If you have a healthy run of alewives uh, enter a polluted lake that has is overgrown with algae, uh, John Lister and I did a rough calculation, and there is approximately five times the amount of nutrient, um, uh, nitrogen and phosphate compounds leaving the system than if every female alewife that had entered had died, which they don't. Most mm. of them go back to salt mm. water. Mm. So it ends up 
cleaning lakes that are polluted. Mm. So Union River, um, I understand that the dam needs to be relicensed in the next several years. So um, this is the opportunity for people to get involved and, and make their voices heard about that particular thing. Ted? It is a great opportunity. Not only would it bring Ellsworth a great deal more money than what the dam is worth, but it would uh, replenish and and improve the opportunities for uh, Atlantic salmon in the Union River again because alewives uh, basically migrate in and leave during the same periods that salmon are arriving. Salmon enter the system in deeper at a, at a greater depth than do the alewives. So basically the alewives become a cover crop for them mm. and if you want more salmon the way to do it is to get more alewives in the system. Great. We have another caller. Go ahead with your question or comment. Give us your first name and where you're calling from first. Hi, this is Dick from Southwest Harbor. The thing I've been curious about, and I was reading Dennis Dennis's op-ed piece about alewives, is what is the what if you don't have an aoy population in a given freshwater stream of some kind? Is it possible to get that started again? If aoys always return to where they came from, does that mean that once the stream is gone from the alewife population, it'll never recover because there's no place for them to come back to, or none to come back to that right. place. Alewives El- are much less faithful to their point of origin than our, our salmon. They're known to distribute themselves along the system, especially if the area where they want to go or would first prefer to go is crowded. They'll simply swim on until they find another source. So there's a very good chance that they could, but that failing, uh, it's not unusual for alewives to be uh, transferred from one site to another to start the process. Mm. So again, we're we're trying to go back to the garden here, um, yeah. not, both on land or in the, in the freshwater system, and then at sea to provide some kind of uh, sanctuary. We won't use that word. I guess it's it's more a closed area that provides for spawning. Yeah, well, it's an area that's going to protect some some habitat and mm-hmm. uh, and also allow the, these marine stocks to recover that are that are at least partially dependent upon the alewives. And there's a lot of benefits there. I mean, we also know that uh, the oceanographic currents in this region that that come down from the Bay of Fundy once they hit Penobscot Bay, they go in a couple different directions. But part of the the main coastal current continues down through uh, towards Casco Bay and into into Mass Bay. Um, the benefit there being if we have uh, ground fish, cod and haddock and so forth recover up here in eastern Maine, then you may see some of the, the eggs and larvae stages of those fish be carried further downstream. Um, and, it, and it just makes sense in the same way that you'd focus on upstream uh, issues for, for rivers. You can focus on the upstream issues for the marine environment here and, and uh, you know, protect that upstream marine environment, and you've got uh, benefits all down the coast of uh, the, the Gulf of Maine. So what are the next steps? Um, how, would, how would you kind of like to see this proceed, and, and how might listeners learn more about this? Yeah, well, this is proceeding through... Um, uh, uh, the New England Fishery Management Council, which is the federal body that's in charge of, of managing fisheries, and uh, they're in the middle of a, of a process now of re- reviewing and considering new closed areas, and there's a variety of uh, perspectives on what closed areas should be. Um, we're really the only ones coming forward with uh, the approach to close an area where there aren't currently fish, with the idea that with all of these drivers in place, we'll see the stocks recover, and we want to make sure that we have healthy populations. So what people can do is is uh, voice their support um, either in a letter to the editor or um, to a, you know, a comment to the main Department of Marine Resources. It's the, it's the DMR, Department of Marine Resources, that um, is our representative on the New England Fishery Management Council. And, um, and also contact uh, us at Penobscot East Resource Center. We've got a website penobscoteast.org and uh, we also have a Facebook page and people are welcome to give me a call if they want uh, more information. Great. Well, thanks, Aaron, and uh, thanks, Ted. Thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, Thank you. Uh, One last mini comment. Uh, What what Aaron is describing and um, I'm fully supporting is the first critical step in ecosystem-based management and it it is a step that needs to be done in order to bring these stocks back. So moving from um, large spatial areas 
and, and managing individual species and how we catch them to managing an ecosystem. Right. And so. that reflects reality because you have the ecosystems put together at different scales. Great. And we're recognizing that. Well, thanks again to our, our guests um, here in the studio and to, um, that was Aaron Doherty and uh, Ted Ames, both of Penobscot East uh, Fisheries Resource Center in Stonington, and Dennis Damon, who joined us by phone. Thanks to our callers. Um, thanks to um, our underwriters. Thanks to Joel uh, Raymond for, uh, Joel Mann for engineering, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Brian Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Empower yourself and strengthen your relationships by learning to connect in a peaceful and productive way. Join Peggy Smith as she offers a two-day introductory workshop in nonviolent communication called Building Bridges of Communication, Saturday, March 23rd and Sunday, March 24th. This workshop is a benefit for WERU and will be held at Waterfall Arts in Belfast. For more information, 